Our text this morning is Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience." For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. Father, it is a great and glorious thing to come together this morning and worship you to lift our voices in song to remember your greatness, to think on your greatness, to meditate on your worthiness. Our hearts are bolstered. They are encouraged. They are built up. And Lord, we long to express to you our love for you and our gratitude, our praise. Lord, as we come to your word this morning then, Help us to think well. Help us to remember what it means to sit under divine revelation. To remember that you have spoken these words and you have left them for us. That you are speaking to us today. In your name we ask this, amen. Paul now turns his attention to the Christian's relationship to civil authority, governing authorities. From chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul is still unfolding what it means to be people who are transformed by the renewing of our minds. In verses 3 through 8 of chapter 12, we find how a renewed mind functions in the church, which is the body of Christ, and how each member of that body has been gifted for mutual growth. And in chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, we find basic Christian attitudes and behaviors that mark a transformed community. His focus now on civil authorities is probably triggered most immediately by verses 17 through 21 in chapter 12, where he has already brought the world, those who live outside of the church, into view. He has warned us not to retaliate or seek revenge. He says to never avenge ourselves, that's chapter 12, verse 19, and he says that the civil government is an avenger, chapter 13, verse 4. It is especially this issue of vengeance that ties verses 17 to 21 to this word about civil authorities in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. It may even be that this, in Paul's mind, is not really even a new topic. He's just kind of following a bit of a trail from these commands Beginning in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. He picks up on these themes here in verses 1 through 7. So this is the flow of Paul's thought. But also I think that Paul is saying these things to keep us from what I would call triumphalism. That's the term that is used for it. This over-celebrating the reality that we belong to the king of kings. To keep us from coming to the conclusion that because we belong to God, because we are being transformed, because we are destined for glory while this age 
this world is passing away, we have somehow been transcended the institutions of this age. And so we are not accountable to the governments that belong to this passing age. Paul is saying, hold on, wait a second, don't get overhyped about your adopted status as the children of God. You still live in this age and are waiting for the promise of glory. Paul gives similar instructions in other places. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, he writes, But we urge you, brothers, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now there, Paul isn't talking about government, governing authorities. He's talking about the fact that, in fact, he's actually correcting the idea that because Jesus is returning, we all ought to quit our jobs mooch off the rest of the world and go sit in a field and wait for him. Paul is saying, no. Part of your responsibility as a citizen of heaven, someone who is destined for glory, someone who is waiting for Jesus Christ to return, is to go about the mundane responsibilities of life, to do it with joy, to work with your hands, to find employment, to raise a family, to contribute to society, to write, to read, to listen to music, to live life. This is part of being a believer in the in-between. So here, part of the waiting for glory is to be subject to the governing authorities. This is the Apostle Paul's initial command and the summary of his main point in this paragraph. Be subject to governing authorities. To be subject or to be submissive means really to arrange yourself under. That is to submit yourself. God is commanding us to take a posture of submission toward governing authorities. To arrange ourselves beneath government in the order of human society. This is not unqualified obedience, though it very well includes obeying laws, obeying ordinances. The governing authorities refers to civil authorities. Now, in one sense, we could say that God has instituted all authorities in our lives. And that may be governing authorities, and that may be a boss at work, an employer. That might be a teacher in school. There are various levels of authorities. What Paul is talking about is government here. He's talking about civil authority. And he's talking about it in the broadest terms, which means it's all-inclusive. For Paul, this was Caesar, governors, Roman procurators, military leaders like centurions, but also what we would think of as vassal kings like Herod. And if you think about Paul's context where he writes this, Paul isn't writing this in a democratic system. Paul is writing these commandments under a despotism. For us, it would, of course, include the highest governing officials of our land, Congress, the President, the Supreme Court, and it would work its way on down to governors and state legislatures, judges, mayors, even our local police officers. We are to subject ourselves to these authorities. And Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, give us three reasons why. Three reasons Christians should subject themselves to governing authorities. First, we should subject ourselves to governing authorities because government exists by God's will. 
Secondly, because government serves God's purposes. And thirdly, because conscience requires it. Because conscience requires it. But before really digging into these verses, I want to point out a couple of things that need to be noted first. First of all, this passage has been abused in history. It is from largely this passage that during the Middle Ages and during the reign of Christendom that kings, in especially the Western world, appealed to their authority. They called it the divine right of kings. And for those of us who have not been in school a long time, you might have to kind of reach way back in the attic of your education in U.S. history or world history, sorry, to remember what the divine right of kings was. It was the claim by kings, potentates, under Christendom, once Christianity had become a state religion, it was the claim of those kings to have a divine right to rule. I can do whatever I want as king because God has sanctioned me and instituted me as the authority over this country or this state. This truth, this passage has been abused in many ways historically in, those, in that sense. Secondly, though this is the most comprehensive direct word in the New Testament regarding civil authority... The instructions in Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7, are general. They are fundamental. This passage does not speak directly to many questions we might have. It does not address a lot of what-ifs, hypothetical situations that might arise. It does not address exceptions, for example... It does not explain what we should do when a government is truly unjust, evil, as God would define evil, and oppressive, like a government that would commit genocide, the eradication of an entire people group because of their race or ethnicity. These verses don't address civil disobedience when disobeying government authority Because that authority legislates policy that contradicts Scripture, that contradicts a higher authority, God's authority, when our governing authorities might legislate policy that violates divine mandates or boundaries. They also, these verses, are not concerned with things like big government versus small government, monarchy versus democracy, free markets, educational systems, immigration, or the right to bear arms. These verses are not dealing with the minutia of all the different kinds of policies that we might talk about, debate, argue over. It's important to note that while we have opinions on these matters, strong ones, this passage is not addressing those things. It may be setting up certain guardrails, it certainly is, as to how we will respond to different policies based on our agreement or disagreement, but it isn't trying to establish whether or not the right to bear arms or the right to free speech is divinely given to every individual on the face of the planet. Now, I say this to free up this text from whatever we might expect it to say, or hope that it says. It just is not that specific. Paul is after something more fundamental, and because of that, broader. Lastly, we have to acknowledge that we live in a time of great political turbulence, don't we? This is demonstrated by our presidential election in 2016. That event... Revealed, I think revealed more than caused. It was kind of the proverbial last straw that broke the camel's back. It revealed 
and caused even a deeper rift in our country. But not only did it split our culture, it caused rifts in the church. It caused rifts in evangelical Christianity. Now, most of that is beyond the scope of this message. But we even experienced some of those deep divisions here at Crossway. And it was saddening to me to watch some of those things play out, even to the extent of some people leaving the church. Facebook posts, vitriol, anger. Never have there been more questions about what it means to be a Christian in the United States or what our relationship to the government is or to politics. And really, on the one hand, our nation has always been divided. If you peruse U.S. history, you will see significant divisions from its very beginning. Many of our founding fathers that we admire Regardless of the fact that many of them were not believers in the biblical sense, Christians, even if they had a a certain Judeo-Christian ethic, many of them were not what we would call believers, true Christians. They were admirable. Many of them disagreed with each other and fought, opposed one another vehemently. The most glaring example in our country's history is our country's division over slavery, which resulted in a civil war. That seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? But on the face of history, that was only 100, I'm just rounding here, I'm not doing math, 150 years ago, 160 years ago. When you're talking about thousands of years of history, that wasn't that long ago. Seems like it because of the industrial age and the advance of technology. But that wasn't that long ago. However, it is accurate to say that there is a rift in our nation, in our culture, unlike any other time in our history, except for perhaps the Civil War, that era. I've heard comparisons, and maybe you have also, made between our divisive, the division we find ourselves in, with the time of the American Civil War. That's probably a fair comparison because I believe the division in our time is, like it was then, fundamentally a moral division. This is why the rift is so deep and the sides so entrenched. Regardless of whatever the the verbiage used is, at the bottom of it all is moral conviction. It is the kind of division that historically ends with bloodshed. I say all of this to say that this is our historical context we find ourselves in reading the Apostle Paul's command to subject ourselves to the governing authorities. Now, having given those caveats, subject yourselves to governing authorities because, number one, Government exists by God's will. Government exists by God's will. Verses 1 and 2. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Government authority originates from God. Now, did God plan for there to be human government before the fall? I don't know. I don't know if the need for human government exists because Adam and Eve sinned, or if God already had in mind that there would be government and structure and authority among the human race if we had all lived in the Garden of Eden. It could go either way. Adam and Eve didn't make it very long to find out. But either way, it originates from God. Its existence is by his design. It doesn't even fall into the category of God allowed the human race to form its own governing bodies and systems. Civil authority originates with God. And the governments and the rulers that do actually exist 
have been instituted by God. The existence of government is by his design, and he has put into place the particular governments and rulers that do exist. As Daniel declares in his prayer of praise in Daniel chapter 2, verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. For this reason, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. This all follows. If God has appointed government to rule, and we resist that rule, that is, we refuse to take our place under its authority, we are really resisting God's will, God's design. That is the opposite of being a transformed people whose minds are being renewed and therefore discerning what is the will of God that is good and acceptable. We are not champions of God's kingdom by overturning the nations. And if we resist God by resisting civil authorities, we will incur judgment, which is talking about consequences enforced by the governing authorities, but also God's judgment in the end. So governments and rulers and the authority they exercise, they all exist by God's will to establish order in human society. In the end... Even if man takes credit for them and all of the various ways of governing, it is God who has instituted government. Secondly, government serves God's purposes. Subject ourselves, we are to subject ourselves to governing authorities because government serves God's purposes, verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Okay, here is the essential purpose for civil authority, to legislate and enforce good conduct in society, which would mean terror for those who conduct themselves badly, who pursue evil. One of the great consequences to rejecting moral absolutes is this loss, really, of justice, the ability to enforce and legislate what is good. Where moral absolutes are abandoned, legal justice is undermined and erodes away. Because justice cannot accommodate individual self-morality where I claim what's right for me and you claim what's right for you. Government or a legal system can't function properly if that's what's brought before its courts, before its benches. Civil government can only administrate justice when it recognizes that there is a standard of right and wrong that is outside of you and outside of the other person and outside of itself to which it is accountable, ultimately. Justice has to have objective standards. But Paul asks a personal question. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Now, I know, like me, you can immediately think of all kinds of exceptions to Paul's statement here. Paul is obviously, when he asks, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority, he does not have in mind Christians that live under civil authorities that would persecute them, that would confiscate their property, imprison them, and even execute them because of their faith. On the other hand, it's probably 
correct to say that's a different kind of fear. That kind of fear that comes from I've done wrong, a Christian living under a civil authority that persecutes them still lives without this kind of fear. He is talking about a fear of just punishment. If you would be free from that, then do what is good. You will earn approval. You will earn a status of being known for cooperating, subjection to authorities. And the key is this, for he is God's servant for your good. He is God's servant. He is God's agent. The governing authorities are God's agents. No, it is hard to accept this when you've been pulled over for going 15 over the speed limit. It is, isn't it? It's hard to remember. This guy is writing me a ticket for my good. I need more explanation. He is God's agent, acting on God's behalf. Hey, whether that person knows it or not, whether the governing authorities, whether it's the local police officer or the president of your country, whether they accept it, whether they know it or not, they are God's agent. He sets up kings and he removes kings. God is working out his purposes even through godless rulers. You believe that? It's true. Nowhere is that seen more clearly than the book of Daniel, which Pastor Scott preached a couple of years ago. Nowhere is that seen more clearly that God is in control of all governments and human history and politics, even to the point of using cruel dictators to accomplish his plans and purposes for history and redemption. And the goal is, here even more personal, again, Paul says it's for your good, it's for your welfare. We are allowed to live and serve God and worship because of the governing authorities. That's why in 1 Timothy, Paul says to pray for those who are in leadership, governing authorities, whether they be kings or governors or whatever it is, Paul says that we might live quietly, pleasing God. That's the reason we should pray for them, so that we can continue to to worship and pursue God with freedom. We do it even if there's not freedom, but we pray for that. The converse is true then. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Paul is extremely clear that he he does not sanction rebellion against the governing authorities because you're a child of the king of kings. You know, we see this really played out in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't we? Here's Jesus. He's been praying. Disciples have fallen asleep, and he's woken them up, and he's prayed, and he has committed himself to the Father's course here, that he's going to be crucified. And the Romans and the the Jews, the Jewish leadership, and probably what would have been the temple police, the temple guards, they show up in the garden. And suddenly the disciples are up and they're awake and Jesus walks out. And what does Peter do? He grabs a sword, right? Hold on. Before you condemn Peter too quickly... Peter has just spent three years with the king of kings, learning. He doesn't understand everything yet for sure. Not e- even what Peter has proclaimed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, is beyond his own understanding. But Peter knows that if Jesus speaks the word, the whole Roman army goes down. 
So Peter's ready. He pulls out a sword, and he does, his actions portray what the motives of the crowds have been for months, which is to try to make Jesus a political ruler and overturn Rome and free them. That was their conception of a Messiah. So while they hear him teaching love and non-rebellion and patience and healing people and delivering people from demons, they want to make him a king. This is one of the reasons Herod hates him, because he sees him as a rival. So Peter is really representing that viewpoint, isn't he? He whips out a sword, and he takes a swing at the servant of the high priest. Luke tells us it was Malchus. He takes his ear off. But what does Jesus say to Peter after he restores Malchus's ear? He says to Peter, those who live by the sword die by the sword. Put your sword away. What he was saying to Peter was, if you pull out a sword, they have the right to take your life. It was by God's grace that Peter didn't kill Malchus If you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God. He's the servant of God for your good, but he is the servant of God in avenging evil doing, wrongdoing. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The sword then represents the tools, the right, the authority to mete out justice. And he is not specifically talking here about capital punishment. But capital punishment has to be included. Ultimately, the bottom line is that's what a sword was used for, was to take life. The ultimate avenging that civil authorities can perform is the taking of the life of someone who has taken another person's life. So then, God has appointed, he has ordained civil authorities to reward good, to punish evil, and in doing so, maintain society maintain society. For all of the negative things that we might read in retrospect of, of a despotic government like the Roman Empire where you had a Caesar who was worshipped as God, one of, the, one of the great examples of Rome or the positive examples was that Rome had a strict legal system. In fact, much of our legal systems borrow from Roman legal systems, courts, judges, those kinds of things. And so there was here then this society that had order. Rome, though it conquered other people groups and forced them under its rule as despots do, instituted certain systems of justice and education, all kinds of things that were brought that most cultures would have considered good or improvements. God has instituted government. They are his servants. They serve his purposes. Now, they do that on a micro level in our lives and in maintaining society, but they also serve his purposes on the scope of world history. As I said, through these governments, monarchies, democracies, God is working out redemption. He's working out his plans and purposes. Lastly, subject ourselves, let us subject ourselves to governing authorities because conscience requires it. Verses 5 through 7. Conscience requires it. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Okay, so one clear reason to subject ourselves to, uh, to authorities is to avoid God's wrath, both through the sword, 
that those civil authorities bear and the divine judgment that it represents. The other reason is conscience. Now, I want to talk about this word a little bit here because I think it's key to everything Paul is saying. Now, usually when we think of conscience, we think of uh, the mechanism for, uh, by which we determine right and wrong. That an alarm will go off if, some, if we're tempted by something wrong. If we take the cookie that mom said not to take, ding, 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 I wasn't supposed to do that. And of course, the human conscience can be misinformed. So the human conscience might not go off when it needs to because it has believed a lie, or it might go off when it doesn't need to because it's believed a lie. I can't play cards because that's linked to gambling. Ding, 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 my conscience is going off. My grandmother was that way. So our consciences... That's how we usually think of our consciences. And Paul has used the word a couple of times already in Romans, but this conscience is something that informs us of guilt or exonerates us and says, that's okay, that's right, that's a good thing to do. This is one way that the word is used. But there are other places in the New Testament where it is used for something else, something like public conscience or reputation, or testimony. Let me give you some examples. And you, as I read these, you can almost fit in the word testimony, or testifies, and it will make more sense. First is Acts chapter 24, verse 16. Paul is on trial. He's explaining himself and why he's gone into the temple in Jerusalem. He's been arrested Acts chapter 24, verse 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. What does Paul mean by that? How can he have a clear conscience toward man? Is he talking about guilt? I always take pains to make sure I don't feel guilty that my alarm isn't going off, whether that's before God or man? To me, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you understand conscience here as something like a public conscience, my conscience is something like my testimony, my life matches up with what I claim. My life testifies to the truthfulness of what I claim about my life. And that is viewable by everybody else before God and before man. So there's no discrepancy, do you see? Let's look at another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians, the majority of the book, Paul is defending his apostleship to the church in Corinth. In chapter 4, verse 2, 2 Corinthians, he says this, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, this is something other than feeling guilty, everyone else feeling guilty. He's talking about the consistency of proclaiming the gospel, but not doing it with cunning or underhanded ways or with greed to get monetary gain. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience, to this public conscience or testimony or reputation where everyone can see the consistency between what we claim and how we live. He continues in the next chapter of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. In other words, 
we know that who we really are, that there is integrity between our message and our methods and our claims, that your conscience can rightly assess that our lives testify clearly, that you have the capacity, that you have the conscience to validate our claims with how we're living. We commend ourselves to your conscience. Lastly, we find the same term in, in probably the most significant parallel passage to Romans chapter 13, and that's found in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and following. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What's he saying? Peter's saying, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, meaning having a right testimony before everybody, so that when you answer with gentleness and respect, when others are slandering you, when they are reviling your good behavior in Christ, they're put to shame, so that the rest of the world looks at that and says, wait a second. Their lives actually match up with what they're claiming. The slander doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. Now back to Romans chapter 13, verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience, testimony, what everybody can see in your life. When people see Christians disobeying governing authorities, rejecting authority, and that's everything from bad-mouthing a cop to undermining the government, setting up a compound and threatening violence against society for whatever reason, and then claiming to have Christian values or biblical revelation, or prophecy behind it, everything on that scale, all that does is jeopardize the gospel. This is why I have a hard time with the in-your-face signs, protests, megaphone things. There is a political freedom to do some of those things. But to claim to be Christian and to chain yourself before an abortion clinic or threaten to bomb it, that is not being subject to the governing authorities. It would be different if the government came in and said, you must abort your children. There we would have to disobey, right? We would say, no. And in some cultures, the national governments will require that, demand that, encourage that, Christians can't do that. There we would have to practice civil disobedience. But this for the sake of conscience, for the sake of testimony, we destroy the gospel. When we take up arms, when we do those kinds of things. Verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Now, he could mean, for because of this, what is this? Because of conscience's sake, because of testimony's sake, that's why you pay taxes. That's why you render your money. See, as a Christian, you're supposed to see your money and your wealth, your possessions as belonging to whom? God. You are a steward of those things. And if this money's God's, why should I give it to the federal government? Paul is saying for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of conscience, you pay your taxes. For one, you will get fined. You could be imprisoned for not paying your taxes. 
Those would be the reasons he gives at the beginning. One must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of the testimony. So not only can you be imprisoned or fined, you jeopardize the gospel. If you cheat the government or withholding taxes. He could also mean that it is right and good to pay taxes because that money is what's supporting the government that God has instituted for your good. Perhaps he means both, but he definitely means the first. Because of this, you also pay taxes. Verse 7, then, is a broad application of this, of living for the sake of conscience, testimony. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So taxes, revenue, Respect, honor, so monetary obligations at all levels, whether it's a federal income tax or whether it's a county revenue for upkeeping the roads. If you were to meet the president, even if you dislike him or her or you disagree with him or her, you would say, Mr. President. Or Mrs. President. You ought to. Why? Because it is good. It is good. Now think about what Paul has said here about good. Chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Being conformed to the world is not subjection to government, or I should say it the other way. Subjecting ourselves to government is not being conformed to the world. Paul's making that clear. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Then he says in verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And then in verse 21 of chapter 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul is simply saying in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, that this government, the government has been instituted for the sake of good. Your good, my good, our good, but also as one opportunity of continuing to do good. To validate the gospel, to bring it into glory. So, on a practical level, then, for us to subject ourselves to the government means to use the democratic processes for moral good and change when we can. Whether that's voting, I don't even think the Bible forbids protesting or marching peacefully, opposing certain policies and legislation would be right, done in a respectful and gentle way. But ultimately, to see our relationship with the government as a vehicle for the gospel. That's ultimately how we're to see it, because we are an eternal people. You see, the Bible views this relationship to governing authorities according to eternity, according to God's greater purposes. And there may be times when we have to practice civil disobedience. There may be a time of that. We see that in the book of Daniel again, don't we? Daniel is framed for praying to God. His enemies, his political enemies, get the king to write a law that forbids praying to anybody but the king himself. And what does Daniel do? He goes to his room. He not only prays, he opens the window. He doesn't even try to hide it. He's not trying to be covert. Well, it's against the law to pray to God. I better close all my windows. He opens the windows, and he prays as he always does ends up in the lion's den. The lions end up not getting him. You know the story. We see it when the apostles are brought before the Jewish leaders 
the Jewish leaders, that they would say that they are bound to obey, to subject themselves to. And when they tell them you may not preach Jesus Christ, they say we must obey God rather than man, right? Acts chapter 5. We have to obey God rather than man. Otherwise, we'd subject ourselves to you, but we're not. And they go out, and they keep preaching, and they keep teaching. There may be times where we need to do that. But on the whole, we are to subject ourselves to civil authorities. That is our Christian preparation for the kingdom that is to come. You understand that, right? God's kingdom is not just a spiritual, virtual, immaterial kingdom. God will reign on the earth. He will establish justice for the peoples of the earth when Jesus returns. The way we prepare for Jesus' return is to live out the gospel and in between to subject ourselves to the governing authorities. Lord, give us strength to do this. Give us wisdom to live this way, not only for our own good and welfare, which we would seek and ask for, but ultimately for your glory, that the gospel would shine, and that when Christians are maligned, as hypocritical or dishonest. Lord, that the church's testimony as a whole, our testimony here at Crossway, would be such that the watching world would say, that's not true of the people I know at Crossway. That's not true of my neighbor. That's not true of the Christian I work with. They always respect the government. Lord, may... Our testimony for the gospel's sake be powerful by following your simple instructions. Give us wisdom in how to apply them. In your name we ask these things. Amen.